This is a Solitaire Media Originals podcast. Hello, welcome to the Galway podcast. This is Fender Jackson, talking to you from Marini Galway. I seem to have regained some of the energy expended from the St. Paddy's Day celebrations. That was a bit of a mammoth session in terms of podcasting, playing and checking out the music. Galway is definitely changing into springtime. You can feel it. It's a lot less Baltic for a start. The stag and hen parties are more commonplace. Tourists are getting more prevalent. Events generally are becoming more frequent. And on top of all of that, the clocks go back this weekend, which will mean more cracker hours during the day. This weekend we'll see Galway playing Kerry and Pierce Stadium in Salt Hill at 1.45pm as a football match for you tourists. If anybody is in from out of town, that should be quite a fascinating match. The last time they played each other was in the All-Ireland Finals last year, although this is a league championship. Full disclosure, I don't actually know very much about football at all. I used to play for Glen, as in Glen versus Kilmacud. You know that club final where Kilmacud beat Glen 46-15? And that's just the amount of players that were on the pitch. So I am told. Well, I used to play for Glen. They got a lot better after I left. Yeah, I wasn't much good at football at all. And I should be thankful for that, really, as it meant I had more time to spend on my real passion, music. Anyway, back to the Galway game. I've been informed that if Galway win, then they're through to the finals. That's apparently good. The sessions are getting a little bit more busy in terms of audience numbers. Not that the audience numbers are poor or have been poor, it's just they're becoming even more popular. When I was in China, I started up a session out there with my great friend and colleague, Sean Og McKiernan from Cavan. Sean Og used to live in Galway and would have attended his fair share of sessions here. He's an amazing banjo player, guitar player and human being. I'm sure I will interview him in the summer if he's up for it. Anyway, Sean Og said to me one day, One of the great things about a session is that it'll bring all types of people together. And this is ringing throughout my mind whenever a guy sat beside me a couple of Saturdays ago with his fiddle. What's your name? I'm Andrew. Where are you from? California. What do you do? I'm an astrophysicist. That's the abridged version of that conversation, but you get what I mean. And to my left, I had Raymond on the button accordion from the Iron Islands. Last Saturday, I got talking to Andrew again, and I started quizzing him about his work. And he started telling me, and I was thinking, oh, gee, stop there. I need to record this, don't I? In China, the father of one of my students is looking for alien life forms out there. And I only found this out in the final weeks of my being in China. So the urge to quiz this gentleman further was a lot less great than it was whenever I was chatting with Andrew last Saturday. Questions I would ask that person. Why? Why Why are you looking for the life forms? Whenever I was talking with Andrew, the, I think it was the first time, we were suggesting to each other final words that our species could utter. And his suggestion was, I wonder what this does. And my suggestion back to him was, it worked. Another thing that we talked about that first evening was 
he told me this story where he asked ChatGPT or whatever that software is called, write a jig in E Dorian. And okay, the computer software wrote a jig that was pretty lousy. However, it wrote its own title. And I don't think it was the Hearn and Nettles Roaring. It was something like a real title. Then Andrew says to me, pretty scary stuff. And I said out to the rest of the room, talking to everybody and nobody, says the astrophysicist, we're all doomed. It was definitely one of those philosophical Homer Simpson moments. Too bad they don't serve duff beer in the crane. Andrew's such a gracious gentleman in that he gave me so much time in his penultimate day in Ireland. He was very relaxed and very forthcoming in terms of his personal story, and you'll find out how he came to take up the fiddle, or the violin, at that time. There's a tragedy involved in that story, and what I didn't say is, isn't it great that his friend gave him this inspiration? As we carry on with our lives, we are inevitably encountering the great sorrows of our friends and relations passing on. In Ireland, there's an old belief that whenever someone close to us dies, they leave for us a gift. I love that idea. And whatever your beliefs are, it is factual here that Andrew's friend has given Andrew the inspiration to take up the violin again. And that in turn has sent Andrew on a journey, which has resulted in him being in Ireland, playing in trad sessions and talking to the likes of me, which you now have the joy to hear. I love the notion that after someone passes, their life ripples on even after the stone has dropped to the bottom of the waterbed. Not only is Andrew playing in trad sessions, but his violin is dramatically transfigured into a fiddle. All of this stems back to his friend's passing. What a gift. I'm very grateful to Andrew for having a conversation with me, which he has described as delightful. When I talk to tourists, I tell them that Ireland is a much better experience when you're open to everything and all that comes with it. And I'm applying that to myself, though I was a little aghast that I almost let Andrew slip through the net. Why didn't I invite him for a chat the first time I met him? Anyway, the conversation did happen. And without any further ado, I bring you Andrew Westfall, the fiddle-playing astrophysicist. This is the Galway Podcast. Andrew, hello. Hello, Fender. How are you? How are you keeping? I'm very well. I'm a bit sleepy after the whole St. Patrick's Day shenanigans. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. It was burning the candle at both ends, working till 3, 4 a.m., like four nights in the trot. Uh-huh. And playing as well, so and then up early for other stuff. So nice, nice. How are you, more importantly? Uh, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Uh, we almost got caught in a uh, St. Patrick's Day parade in um, in Portumna. Escaped, barely escaped with our lives. But in what uh, way? oh, we were just leaving from the uh, the Workhouse Museum in Portumna uh, just at the time that the St. Pat- Patrick's Day parade was just starting, and so we're driving down Main Street, and there are all these people waving at us. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so they thought that you're part of the parade. I guess we were by by uh, by complete accident. <laughs> and did you know? Did you think they were just lined up to see you? No, no, no. <laughs> we knew better. <laughs> How did you rate the, the 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 workhouse museum? Yes. How did you rate it? 
Oh, it was recommended by a friend uh, who has been seven or eight times, uh, and uh, I learned a lot. It was uh, incredibly grim, a vivid reminder that all of my, in quotes, problems, you know, are first world problems, um, and that history can turn in unexpected ways to unbelievable cruelty. It was it was very moving. Um, my episode two was with my first proper episode. I I would argue um, was with Jim H- O'Higgin, uh-huh. and he talks about um, the history of Galway, how it has come to be the city that it is today, and he talked about the the psyche of the time of the workhouses, saying yeah. how it was a crime to be poor, because what they did was they basically separated the children from the from the adults, and and you had the the hospital. The workhouse and the cemetery, all within the local area. Right. You know, it's yeah. horrific. Splitting up families, just unbelievable. Mm. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of of COVID in, in some ways. You know, whenever I was in China, they were separating the, mm. you know, COVID positive children from the COVID mm. negative parents. Mm. And, um, and that was a very short time. And that was traumatic for me to have lived through that, you know, that at any moment that was going on mm. and could happen to me. Mm. And, um, uh, yeah, but imagine that actually happened to you and then there's, n- there's no way out, you know. Right. Yeah. yeah. So we're, we're doing an Irish conversation already. We, we, we are. We haven't even done the introduction. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Andrew Westfall, who are you and why are you here? Oh, boy. Well, um, my profession is uh, uh, I'm an astrophysicist. And I uh, work at the University of California at Berkeley. I am in Galway um, to uh, play music as much as I can and to learn about Irish traditional music uh, and to be as, as I, I wasn't my original intention, but as it has turned out, just to be part of this community. And this is the way it's sort of rolled. Um, I have found, I, I was very lucky to be close to a, a coffee shop, um, Murray's. Uh, and I roll out of bed every morning, go over to Murray's, and I've met a lot of people that way. And so um, uh, it's been delightful just to know people here and in a small way feel like I'm more and more part of the community. Um, and it's been just an idyllic existence. And when did you first come here? First came in September. Uh, 2022. Yes, last year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, between two trips, was here for a total of about two months. Uh, and then uh, went back home to California. Uh, was there for four months. Or I, well, I haven't done the math, but anyway, something like that. And, and came back, this time only for two and a half weeks. So a very, much shorter trip than before. Um, but it was a little bit surreal because when I arrived, I, it was almost as if I hadn't left. It was like those four months just sort of disappeared. That's <laughs> it wonderful. Was very, it was a very weird feeling. I, I have that situation with um, 1996. I left Ireland. Uh-huh. And um, sometimes I come back and pick up with people and I haven't seen them in five or ten years. And it's like, wow, we haven't, we haven't, nothing's happened. We're still there, you know. You're right. It's wonderful. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I don't know, I'm not sure if that is specific to Ireland or just the world and friendship, you know. Hard to say. Hard to say. Yeah. What possessed you to book the flight in the first place? Uh, in the fall, or yeah. in the autumn, I or should say, autumn. just to be clear, <laughs> yeah. to use the American idiom. Um, 
Well, uh, I guess backing up a little bit, I played uh, old time in bluegrass fiddle for some years in California. Um, and that in turn was precipitated by the death of a friend of mine in a climbing accident in Yosemite in, I think, 1996. And uh, something I had always wanted to do was to learn to play violin. That was the way I put it at the time. And, and that was quite a shock to my system and, uh, and a jolt that, that made me uh, think about how, how short life is and, uh, and you only live once and if I'm ever going to play violin, I better start. So I did. But that was a time when I was working full time, had small children. Uh, in fact, when I started, I hadn't had children yet. Um, but then... Um, uh, you know, raising two girls and just being very busy. I never really had very much time to devote to playing. Um, but then the girls grew up and they went out of the house and I and, uh, found myself with more time during COVID. And I thought, well, I always found myself gravitating towards what little overlap there is between, between old time, the old time repertoire and Irish traditional music. And remember the very first tune that I heard that just grabbed me by the gut. For some reason, I have no idea why, it was Congress Reel. And, uh, and I, just, I just loved that tune. And uh, so during COVID, I thought, you know, I, let me listen to that inner voice. And so I started taking lessons with an Irish uh, uh, trad teacher, uh, Darcy Noonan, in uh, California. And Darcy had lived in Galway. She's American, but she had lived in Galway for five years. And, and so she knows a lot of the regulars um, here, uh, Michael Chang and, and George Grasso and a lot of other people. Uh, she played quite a lot with Frankie Gavin when she was here. And so uh, when I thought uh, about a year ago also, I went into retirement, um, quasi-retirement. I'm still working half-time roughly. Um, but I had enough time to be able to travel and to, and to devote to actually really sinking into music. About, that started about two years ago and, uh, and thought it would be just a delightful adventure to, to go to Galway. And so here I am. <laughs> and welcome you are. Well, thank you. I feel very welcome. I just said to somebody in, in a session at Six Mile Bridge last night uh, uh, how welcome I feel always in all the sessions or almost all, and um, it's it's uh, and 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 she said, "Well, of course you are." And I said, "Well, you, be careful because you shouldn't take that for granted. People are not always welcoming all over the world." <laughs> <laughs> True. So, yeah. Um, what what I love about sessions and my friend, because I never played sessions properly until I came to Galway this time. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I, I played them in China, and you mentioned the Congress reel, and the Congress reel was a very popular tune that we played in, in China. We had um, uh, Australians, we had um, people from USA, people from a lot of people from Ukraine. And um, yeah, so every time we busted out the Congress, it was, it was almost like we shifted into a new gear. Mm. You know, and it's like, okay, the session's really flowing now. Mm. And um, I, I totally get it, what you're talking about there. Um, and whenever I moved to Ireland and uh, the sessions, uh, what happened was my, my buddy that I started the session with in China, he's from County Cavan, and he says the sessions are a great leveler, you know, because you can be sitting down 
and on your right hand side you have you know an architect on your left hand side you could have a farmer you know and mm -hmm. I, I, those words <coughs> stuck with me. And then whenever you mentioned that you're an astrophysicist, and also Cara is an astrophysicist, and I've been playing with her as well. And then whenever Cara told me, I, I didn't have the podcast uh, live at that stage, so it wasn't on my agenda to talk to her. But then you mentioned it the other night, and it's like, oh, you started I asked you about your work, and I went, I've got to talk to you, you know? <laughs> so um, so what I, that's what I love about the, the session, is that it will bring all forms of people together. It's true. It's and, true. And it's a bit like the coffee shop, you know. Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. fact, it might even be better than the coffee shop because not everybody can afford a cup of coffee these days. And right. that's, that's no joke on the side. Right. Um, so, yeah, so it's very important for, for communities, I believe, to thrive, you know, through the existence of these um, fantastic sessions. Well, I think one, one of the things that I recognized on my very first trip to Ireland, which was probably in 1991 or something like that, I forget exactly, when I came to a conference in Dublin, uh, something I recognized quickly, and I'm not sure how I picked up on it, was something was one of the things I really like about American culture, uh, or the best of American culture. I have many problems with American culture, many, many problems, to be very clear. But one of the things that I really like is how, how flat society is here. By comparison, I'm not trying to say that it's completely flat. Of course, it's not. No, no society is. But there's much more of an attitude, which I think is summarized really nicely in a, in a phrase from the musical Oklahoma, where Aunt Eller is singing, and she says, um, uh, let's see if I can get this right, she says, um, uh, I ain't no better than anybody else, but I'll be danged if I ain't just as good. I remember that line. Yeah, yeah. and I really, really like that, and that, that, isn't, that isn't, you know, especially these days in America where inequality is rampant and terrible, but there's something about that in, in some parts of American culture that I suspect comes from Ireland that um, it's sort of a, a default, you know, attitude and that you can have, you know, millionaires sitting next to, you know, millionaires. really <laughs> millionaires sitting. No, but you can have people who are sitting next to each other who are very, have very different, you know, circumstances sitting together, having a pint in the pub. And, and that seems to be a really, Important. I think it's a very valuable part in my observation, you know, of Irish society. And, you know, I recognizing that it's very easy for Americans, especially, to romanticize Ireland and Irish people and so on. But um, but having spent enough time here and having had enough conversations with people who have lived here for a long time, I think there's something really to that. Uh, and it really is a contrast with parts other parts of American society and that may have had some influence from English society where everybody's really status-seeking. Like, you have to find very quickly... It's important to figure out where you are in some kind of social hierarchy compared to anybody you're talking to. So you'll find some way to, to figure that out. And it, it doesn't seem to be so important here. I, I, uh, think, I think it still exists. I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm pretty sure it does. But, sure. But I think, I think the... The distance between the very rich and the very poor here is, yeah. is not as extreme. Exactly. Yeah. You know, in China, it's 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 as bad as, as I always think of China and the USA are so similar. Yeah. You know, like they love their flag, they love their country, they think they're the best nation on the planet, and so on. Um, I, I, and and there's nothing wrong with that because that's what they grew up with. But um, there is this huge gulf between the very rich and the very poor. Yeah. Whereas in Ireland, we're not as rich. 
but we're not as poor as well. Right. You know, we're lucky that um, I say we we're still part of the EU, and um, we do get looked after a fair bit. You know, um, there's the argument about free NHS, free national health, which we have up north, mm-hmm. but it's a mess up there. And then down here, you have to pay for it. But I mean, is it is it the same as what you're paying in taxes? I don't know what it is, but but it seems moving from where I was to here, I I, f- I find that the society is a lot more um, palatable for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Well, it, I feel that it fits my personality, much, mm. <laughs> you know, really well. I I I, I love living here. I, and you you fly tomorrow. I do. Sadly, I'm. I, I, I predicted this. I'm very sad today. Oh well. Yeah. At least you have something memorable. Hopefully, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so so uh, you can revisit this here. And um, but uh, you know what's really cool as well is your memories of the sessions. Do you have videos of them? Uh, I tend not to do that. I when I was first here in the autumn, I did a lot of recording. This time, I, I mean, I have so many recordings and so many tunes to to learn mm. yeah, <laughs> that yeah. I didn't really bother too much this time. I think I think we're all in that boat, you yeah, know. Yeah. I, I know speaking for myself and all the people who I play with, you can just see the recorders out. Yeah. And then the next week the, the same recorders are out and the same tunes are playing and they're still not playing them, you know. So right. we all um don't worry about that too much because yeah. we, we all learn in our own time. You yes. Know? Right. So this trip, what's been the best thing about your trip this time around? That's a great question. Uh, it's, um, you know, I, I, one of the f- phrases I really like f- that I applied in a lot of different ways is from The Tempest, what's past is prologue. And it feels like my trips here in the autumn were a prologue to my trip this time. Um, it, this trip has been so rich, even though it's been only two weeks, it's just been so packed with sessions and uh, and conversations and... Um, going to see a play um, uh, that Michael Chang did the music for in in Dublin last Saturday, and 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 I don't know. It's it will take me quite a while, I think, to figure out what the highlight was. Um, but I'll just say I think I can some that come to mind. We're playing at the Crane um, on, on both on last Saturday and the Saturday before. Just loud and fast and fun and it was just great uh and i just i as i was sitting playing and playing along when i could you know because i'm only an intermediate player just think how how incredibly lucky and privileged i am to be able to be here just grateful to something i don't know what but just really grateful that i can be here you know and be part of that just transporting so Michael, uh, he leads the sessions on the crane on a Saturday night. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm incredibly grateful to be sitting there because you're playing with world-class yeah, absolutely. musicians. Absolutely. Not even you know the best players of Irish music in the world, but the, the, some of the best players of the, in the world, I, I would argue, because you know, folk music is just as, as uh, relevant as, as classical or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and these guys, many of them are totally virtuoso in their, in their oh, field. Yeah. So it's it's incredible to be, and an, an honor to be playing with these people. Likewise. Mm-hmm. Absolutely yeah. likewise. Yeah. So it's good that, so you will be coming back. I, I'll say, God willing and the crick don't rise. Yes. <laughs> I'm planned to come back in October. The what don't rise? Oh, the crick. The creek. Creek. Oh, okay. <laughs> God, God. Yeah. It's just an American phrase. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like, uh, God willing. Inshallah. 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 Yeah, right. Do you have um, family here? 
I don't. Well, I, I'm sure I have many distant cousins. But, but the, are you an Irish my, descendant? Uh, I'm a Kelly on my mom's side, um, and uh, but I have never made the attempt to make any kind of connection with any distant cousins. The the Irish part of my family came over during the, the famine, so it's too many generations ago. Uh, and uh, I'm sure with some effort I could figure it out, but it's actually not that important to me mm. uh, to... To understand that, so. yeah. and you might find that you can't work it out anyway because it's possible the IRA blew up a lot of records back in the time, right? Which meant that uh, a lot of history is just gone forever, right? Uh, that was in Dublin, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the GPO in Dublin, the General Post Office. I, I was reading this after the play in the, the, this play called The Table, which is a parable about the Irish Civil War. They had handed out this graphic novel. Mm-hmm. Um, to everybody as they're leaving the theater, and I was reading it on the coach on the way back to Galway, and they were talking about that. Uh, very sad. Mm. Um, huge loss to, to Irish history and Absolutely. culture. Absolutely. Yeah. That's heartbreaking. You yeah. know, like, you know I, I talk to some people, and they can trace their families back to you know, 15th, 16th century. Mm-hmm. You know, we can go back to the famine times, and that's it. You know? yeah. But, I mean, as you say, uh, it's, it, you know, it's less relevant as you go further back as well, you know. So, but it's still interesting, you know. It is interesting. I think it would be more interesting if I if I really could know their stories. But if it's just a matter of having a name and a birth date and a death date and maybe a marriage date, which is usually what happens mm-hmm. in my experience, it's vaguely interesting, but it's not really worth a huge amount of effort <laughs> to find out. So, but you know, the, the stories, as you say, is uh, it's. It's fascinating, you know. Yeah. Like um, I remember, I'll talk very quickly about my my ancestors. So um, uh, a, a man is walking. This is in Montana. So mm. a, a guy is walking down the street, and he's from the County Derry. In Montana, he's in Montana, but he's from County Derry in Ireland. Okay. And he sees these two girls walking down the street. And he says, "Oh, hello, girls. You look pretty fine. Maybe I'll marry one of you." And they both, they both who were from Derry you know, because it's famine times, said, oh, we're actually both married, but our sister is available. Okay, I'll marry her. She's in Derry. I'll bring her over. I'll marry her. They brought her over. They got married. He had six children with her, or she had six children with him. And then after the sixth child, she died. Hmm. So then he had to move from... Well, he didn't have to, but he chose to move from uh, Montana back to Derry. It took him six weeks. And the eldest was in a wheelchair, and the youngest was a, a baby in arms. Wow. Yeah, and then he got back home, and then soon after that, the one in the wheelchair died, and the, the infant was given away to his sister-in-law to raise, and that was my mother's mother. Wow. Yeah. So it's, What a it's, story. And then others, on the other side, you have the story of um, my father... My father's father. He was, he was in the, he he, he was released from from a from an establishment where he was um, serving some time there, <laughs> and uh, because he thought he was going to die, and he got out, and then um, what happened was, he started getting good health again, and then the, the matchmaker came round to his house. You know, the matchmaker mm-hmm. puts him together mm-hmm. with another uh, mm-hmm. partner. So uh, he says, "Okay, we've got a we've got a." A session lined up for you, or, or a, a, a date lined up for you, Monday night, here, come to this address. So all the family was waiting there, it was this bride-to-be, and on the Monday evening, and he didn't come. 
the girl gave up. So then the matchmaker went round to my grandfather's house and started shouting at him. He says, why didn't you come? He says, oh, I was a bit tired, I didn't want to. Okay, I've got another one lined up on Wednesday. Come on Wednesday, or else you're going to be in really big trouble. He came on Wednesday, and that was my grandmother. Ah. So it was like this, you know, weird. As you say, it's the interesting stories where, yeah. where like um, serendipity almost, you know, right. and it causes right. us to be. To oh, there, yeah, they're, those pivotal moments, yeah. those pivotal forks in the road are fascinating. Yeah. And of course, every moment in your life is is a moment like that, and you're not aware of it. But then some are more vivid than others, exactly. for sure. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Do you miss a loved one that's passed on? Perhaps you miss their voice or their mannerisms. Perhaps you have questions that remain unanswered. Don't let that happen to your children or grandchildren. At Salt Hill Media, we can record your life story or that of a loved one for future generations. So when someone asks, hey, what was granny like? Or what was granddad like? You can point them to an interview and say, you tell me. We can tailor an interview to be as long or as short as you want it to be all with professional recording equipment and post-production. You may think that your life is not worth documenting. Well, not according to your children or grandchildren. Record that life story before it's too late. Email salthillmedia at gmail.com or go to salthillmedia.com for more information. This is the Galway Podcast. So, um... Yeah, whenever we were talking the other evening, um, I, I asked you very quickly and um, you started telling me about your job and I, I was like, stop it, stop talking. We've got to record this, you know. <laughs> so I'm going to revisit that. We might cover some ground again. And um, if, you, if you forgive me, I am coming at it from, uh, I told you about my, my grandparents, you know, that's who I am. So... I'm going to be bringing it down to a common denominator in terms of understanding it you know, yeah. as much as I can. Right. So um, I asked you before, is this, you know, do you know much about music theory? And you said, not really. Not really, no. So uh, there's a meme I was sent a long time ago, which was this person standing at a, at a chalkboard and saying, uh, it was all this here, um, um, all this stuff on the board anyway. And the person, the teacher is saying, Come on, guys, it's not rocket science. <laughs> and then there's another image of a different uh, gender, whatever, it's man or woman, it's flipped. And the person's saying, come on, guys, it's not music to me. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> I feel that way a lot. <laughs> so I'm strong on music theory, but I'm not strong on the astrophysics. Though. Right, right. So I'm going to... I'm going to rewind you sometimes where I lose it a bit. Sure. But um, So let's explain a little bit about what it is that you do. Yeah. So I lead a research group that uh, st- we study uh, stardust. And more specifically, we study materials that have been brought back from space, mostly by two NASA missions, one called Stardust, had the same name, another one called Genesis. Uh, the Stardust mission brought back samples from a comet about 300 micrograms, a tiny amount of material, but it's, it turns out to be enough to keep everybody in this community busy for decades. Uh, and the first samples of solid material that 
sometimes is called dust. I don't really like the term because it sort of uh, has a negative connotation. They're really just tiny rocks, but the very first ones from outside our solar system. So uh, interstellar uh, rocks. So these are and rocks that are found in our solar system from outside our solar system. Exactly. Right. Right. Uh, so the reason that we could collect them without having to go outside our solar system is because the, our solar system is moving with respect to um, interstellar space at a very high speed, 26 kilometers a second, very fast. Um, and so the image to have is that it's sort of like driving down a freeway in a snowstorm. The snowflakes are, compared to the speed of the car, just kind of sitting there. From your perspective in the, as a driver of the car, you see these snowflakes coming at you from a particular direction, the direction you're headed. Uh, it's the same thing. So our solar system is moving with respect to local interstellar space. And what that means is that there are interstellar, tiny interstellar rocks coming at us from a particular direction on the sky. And so this, uh, this mission called Stardust collected um, a few dozen of these particles. Um, and um, so the, the big picture, why do, why do this at all? It's really to understand our own origins. So we're a little bit like archeologists or paleontologists trying to understand our own origins, except that, for example, somebody who goes to study ancient hominids, let's say in Africa, will go back to look at fossils that are, say, I'm going to make it up, but a few million years old, let's say four million years old. Um, we're also looking at it, in a way, we're looking at fossils left over from the time that the solar system was forming, not four million years ago, but four billion years ago, so a thousand times further back in time. Uh, and uh, so we use some of the most sophisticated instruments on the planet to unlock the secrets that are locked in these tiny, tiny little particles collected both from the comet, which formed when the solar system formed at about the same time as Pluto and have been in deep freeze ever since the solar system formed, um, but also the, these interstellar rocks, which are really the building blocks of the solar system. Um, and uh, so it's an exciting adventure, and we learn all kinds of interesting and surprising things. And most of the time, we make discoveries that we just raise more questions. But that's the way science rolls, and that's what makes it a fun adventure. So if, if I understand this correctly, it's almost like driving... If our, if our, if our solar system is a car, yeah, it's almost like driving with a gap in the window, and there's... Stuff coming in from yeah, outside. That's a good. That's a good image, right? Yeah. So in this particular case, we had to use a weird material called aerogel, which is a solid, but it's only a few times as dense as air. It's really bizarre. If you hold a block of it in your hand, it's like holding a ghost. You can't feel its weight. It is a solid, but and you can see it. And you can see it, but it's kind of ghostly, and it and it's sort of uh, it's a little bluish. Uh-huh. You can. Google it. You'll it's see pictures Casper. of it. It sounds like Casper. <laughs> the ghost. Yeah, right. No, it feels, yeah, it's a little bit like a ghost. Um, and the reason we used that was because we're having to capture these particles when they hit the spacecraft going at really high speeds. Even going to the comet, we were still going at six, the, the spacecraft was still going at six kilometers a second with respect to the comet. So these particles are coming in at this speed and they have to, they, they go from six kilometers a second to zero 
to stopped in only less than a millimeter. And what size are they? Uh, there are a variety of sizes, but uh, the typical ones that we study are about 10 microns. So for scale, a human hair is usually, it's variable, but 200 microns. So it's a 20th the the, the diameter the width of a human hair yeah and how does it cause damage <clears throat> whenever it goes from that speed to zero that's a great question so um, for some components yes so some things get creamed particularly what we call organics that is the the compounds that are made of carbon hydrogen oxygen um, doesn't mean that they were produced by life it just it just means that they're they're um, made of carbon, carbonaceous material, and that stuff is pretty fragile. So when it, that stuff, when it goes into the aerogel, um, gets cooked pretty well. But the rocks, the silicate rocks, um, and other kinds of rocks uh, that are the rocky components of these things survive really very nicely. And so we, that's what we focus on is studying those. So one of the big surprises was that uh, early on was the discovery. Uh, that although this comet that we collected the material from, a comet called VILD-2, uh, formed, as I said, as we turned out, 4.568 billion years ago. We know that number actually pretty well. Um, out where Pluto is in what's called the Kuiper Belt at the edge of the solar system and has been in deep freeze ever since, no more than about 40 degrees above absolute zero, that comet is still packed with minerals that form only at very high temperature. Who ordered that? So we still don't really understand that. There are theories and, and so on, but it's a it's an enormously contentious debate going on about where, where did these come from? And, and, and what's, we, what's the growing consensus? There isn't really one. <laughs> what, what, are, what are a couple of them? Uh, one is that they these things formed close to the early sun, uh, where the environment was very hot and then got transported out to the edge of the solar system and then incorporated into the comet. That, if there is a consensus, it's probably that. But it's not at all clear how to test that idea. And, um, and there are reasons to think that it's not right. Uh, another possibility is that these things formed in collisions between bodies out in that part of the solar system. But there are problems with that, too. So every theory has a problem. And it, my guess is that they're probably both wrong, and it's something else entirely we haven't, we're not clever enough to, to have thought of yet. I saw in the news the other day that um, Stephen Hawkins said to a, to a colleague or a friend that a brief history of time is incorrect. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, the beautiful thing about science is the will to disprove itself. You know, yes, uh, I, that's what I love. I, one of the one of the quotes I love is um, about science. When you think about science, certainty is the antithesis of knowledge. Mm. It takes a little while to sink in mm. to understand what you mean by that, but I, I would think it's it's deeply true. Mm. Now, it's not like maths, where you can prove things. Mm. Nothing is ever certain in, in science. Mm. Everything is prov provisional. Yeah, theory. Yeah, journey. Yeah. Um, you said. Cooked, so whenever they come in from 26 um, kilometers a second, mm -hmm. or 6 kilometers a second. That was for going to the comet, yeah. but the stuff coming into the solar system is, well, some of it is slowed, mm -hmm. so it's they come in at variable speed. So, okay. so, yeah. so you say that whenever they arrive in and they, it, it overcooks, what, what does that look like? 
does the, does the whole thing just explode or? Well, fortunately, so, so some of them do, right? So if they come in at very high speed at that at that speed, mm. then they don't survive capture at all. They're vaporized even in the aerogel. But some of those particles were slowed by light pressure, it turns out, as they come into the solar system. And so those particles were slowed enough that we can capture them intact. And so we had a, uh, a project um, uh, that was turned out to be quite important, I think. Uh, well, I'll come back to that in a second. Anyway, so yes, so make these little, little tiny tracks uh, in the aerogel, uh, and the particles have survived. So we can analyze them uh, it, to, a, to a limited extent. Uh, but th there are things we'd like to do to analyze them that we haven't done yet because we don't yet know how to do it safely. If we had thousands of them, then we would be able to just experiment and say, well, we'll try this. But there's so few of them, and they're a precious, you know, they're, a, they're like a national treasure. Um, and there's no, there are no plans on the books to fly another mission like this anytime soon. And so we have to be very, very, very careful uh, in what we do and make sure that whatever we do doesn't destroy the particles by accident. Um, so, but I think the, the fun story, one of the fun stories about this was the very first step. So it turns out the collector is about the size of a stop sign. I was going to ask you this. I'm yeah. seeing, I'm seeing yeah. a vision of a robot with a big net. With yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like it was a big, big collector. I mean, big, okay, size of a stop sign, if you want to call that big made of aerogel, um, we knew approximately how many particles we captured because we knew the rate at which they come into the solar system, but we didn't know where they were. Uh, yeah, and they're tiny. question is going to ask is, well, yeah. how do you know where to look? Right, right. Well, you don't because there could be anywhere. So um, we took a very unusual approach to try to find them, to find them. We did find them, but... Uh, the problem was that, that they're really tiny, and so you have to use a microscope to find these tiny little tracks. They're very subtle, very, very hard to see. Um, and, and to uh, search for them at high, high enough magnification in a microscope to be able to see them, it turns out if you do the math, you have to search about a million fields of view. Well, that's a lot of work. Um, so the approach we took was to use an automated microscope that we had already developed for a different project, use that to automatically scan and collect images of the aerogel, and then ask for help from citizens, uh, from amateurs. Oh, and so it's a... Crowdsourcing. Exactly. Yeah. So it was a citizen scientist project, so-called. Um, one of the first in the, in the modern era, I could come back to that. turns out that there have been some in the uh, past. What, what year was this? Uh, so we started that in 2006. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the project called Stardust at Home. Mm -hmm. and uh, Is that a website? Yep. Mm -hmm. so, so over the course of several years, we had 32,000 participants who collectively did about 100 million searches. Wow. And, uh, and then in, uh, I think it was coming up on 10 years ago now, we had a paper in Science magazine, which is one of the premier science journals, with... Uh, a list of 60, roughly 60 professional scientists, but 32,000 amateurs as co-authors. Mm -hmm. And um, and their names are all listed. They're all listed. Wow. Uh, not not in the magazine, because yeah, that would yeah. take the entire issue. From you know? PDF. But, but it was, uh, yeah, reference to, to everybody. And um, so it was, it was very successful. Uh, and uh, I'm, 
I'm actually pretty proud of that. And it also inspired a bunch of other citizen scientist projects, uh, one called Galaxy Zoo, for example, another one uh, called Foldit, which now, now they've turned to AIs to do this work, but it was really people who did this to figure out how proteins can fold. It was a very, very complicated and difficult problem, and, uh, and a lot of other citizen scientist projects. So, um, so this was really a fun, fun thing. And it was inspired by something that some of your listeners may be familiar with. It's called SETI at Home, which is a search for extraterrestrial intelligence. But that was something using the spare computing power on people's computers, not using people's eyes and brains. Uh, so really quite, quite different in that way. But it was still something that was you know, farming out all this work uh, to people who were interested in participating in a real science project. And that was something that was really real. I mean, it was not made up for public outreach or something. It was because this is the only way we knew how to do it. And so people really knew that they were really participating as collaborators in a real, real, you know, scientific effort, an important one to, to find the very first interstellar dust. Uh, and so you're working for NASA? I work for UC Berkeley, um, but, but, is but it, the funding is from NASA generally. Okay, yeah. so it's, it's mm-hmm. going, the information is going to there? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. Have you seen any evidence of alien life form, or do you... Do you suspect there is? We've seen no evidence of alien life. I don't think we would in this particular, in the work we do. Mm. Uh, I really don't don't know how we would recognize. Um, it's not something we're looking for, and I'm not sure how we would recognize it even if it were there. It would be unexpected, I think, you know, I mean, to, to find life in a comet, for example, because this is something that's, you know, super cold and... Um, not to say that it's impossible and that there might be something really wacky, but but certainly couldn't host anything like life as we know it with water-based chemistry because everything is really frozen. Um, with regard to the question of whether I, I personally think that there's life out there, um, you know, I don't know if I could do any better than that quote from the movie Contact. You know, it's a big universe. So I kind of think so. But it's my—it's only a guess, and there are good arguments to be made both directions that life is very common in the universe, and that right life is very rare in the universe. Um, one of my colleagues, Don Brownlee, uh, wrote a book called *Rare Earth*, which I highly recommend, about the uh, specialness of Earth in many ways. But it's also a complicated question. You know, there's the question of: Is there microbial life, very primitive life, on other planets? all the way up to are there advanced civilizations on other planets and how common is just primitive microbial life on other planets is really pretty different than the question of uh, you know how often or how common are advanced civilizations that are capable of communicating over big distances. And um, so there are reasons to think that uh, that life is very common, but maybe only microbial life. The best argument I've heard that it's common is that life appeared on Earth almost as soon as it could have. And so it wasn't something that was extraordinarily unlikely, apparently. But, you know, we only have our own examples, so it's hard to know. And the best, best reason to think that maybe advanced civilizations are not common, you know, sort of in a sort of, sort of Star Wars kind of like universe, is that we've been listening for quite a while for signals from other civilizations, and so far the silence is deafening. It's a hard problem, you know, and so who knows? But there's a there's a well-known question that was posed by Enrico Fermi called the it's the Fermi paradox, and his question is, where are they? 
if the, if the universe is teeming with life, why aren't they here? And of course, some people will say, well, they are, there are UFOs everywhere, you know, but I, I'm pretty skeptical, you know, I mean, you know, you have these pilots who are seeing weird things, but why would they only appear to military pilots? Why don't they just appear on, you know, the mall in Washington, D.C. or, you know, downtown London, right? I mean, <laughs> like the Jack Nicholson movie, Life of Mars or, or uh, Mars of Texas. Or yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> right, exactly. Anyway. So that's probably more than you wanted to know. And this is a podcast about Galway, but anyway. no, it's great. This is great. I mean, for me, you're a very fascinating character because, as I say, the, it comes back to the session. You know, this guy who's studying intergalactic uh, space material ends up in a session in Galway. You know, that for me is mm. the story. You know? mm. And um, this, and then to delve into your line of work um, is fascinating for me personally. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, floats well, my boat. Well, let me riff on that just a little bit. One of the questions I asked somebody the other day was very much the same question that Enrico Fermi asked, which is, where is everybody? I mean, I, I go to these sessions, and once in a while I'll see another American there, you know, but not, uh, well, there are a bunch of Americans who live in Galway, you know, but I'm talking about somebody like me, you know, who's a sort of intermediate player, who just is coming and just playing and, and doing my best to play along, you know, and and there are lots of people I know in in America who play Irish traditional music, and part of the reason, you know, so so the question is why isn't why aren't the pubs packed with, you know, all these Irish traditional music enthusiasts, you know, and I guess part of it is just that I'm extremely fortunate that I have the time and the resources to be able to come here, you know, and that isn't true of everybody. I think, so. I think you have the personality as well because not everybody... I think people feel um, daunted about going to a session. Mm. You, whenever you're describing your level, I'm thinking, I'm, I, that's me. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm this guy who's blowed in as well. Mm. You know, despite having come here since an infant, you know, through family trips and so on. But um, I, I don't feel that I'm at the level that I should be at. Mm. You know, but I, I'm, I'm working hard to get there. Um, so... Yeah, I, I think people would feel daunted about joining in a session. And it is daunting. Yeah, yeah it, is. it is. Because, yeah. I mean, I mean, sometimes I'm playing and then a person beside me will say, I could never have joined in there. It's way too fast. Yeah. You know, like the, we are playing. And a good measure, my father would tell you, a good measure of trad music is can you dance to it? You yes. Know? And right. there's listening, there's listening trad and there's dancing trad. Yeah. And... Uh, dancing trad is obviously you dance to it and listening is more of mm -hmm. an entertainment I'm thinking the crane on a Saturday night mm -hmm. um, but it is it's well fun fast. fundamentally it's all dance music it yeah, all comes yeah. from that and um, and I'll put in a plug actually mm -hmm. and I think Treylock would appreciate this so one of the one of the ways that I scheduled my trip was so that I could go to the set dancing class that a guy named Treylock teaches in Renmore Set for set dancing, Irish set dancing, and I love it. He's well; he's an excellent teacher. It has been so fun. I've been doing set dancing, learning set dancing in California as well, and there's a fairly large community of people who do it there. Um, but uh, I just, I one of the reasons I love it is just that the music informs the dance, and the dance informs the music, and it's so fun. And just, I don't know, fun is the wrong word. Uh, uh, transporting to to dance to music that you also play mm, yeah. and because you can feel it you can feel where you should be you know and and uh in the music and you feel where it's going to end and 
And anyway. I think throughout history, one's fueled the other. You know, mm. one has inspired the other yeah. in the creation of uh-huh. new areas in which to go. Yeah. You know, like, a, oh, we'll play this here, that'll reel, it'll work well with the dance. And, yeah. yeah. Oh, we'll do this, it'll dance, it'll work well with that jig yeah. or whatever. Anyway, so so just to put in, the, to be specific, it's at Lakeview School on Tuesday nights, starting at 7. The beginning class is at 7, and then there's a more advanced class that goes from 8 to 10, I think. I uh, might go there next oh, Tuesday. Oh, yeah. you should go. I, you know, great. I was watching... It's just so fun. I was watching some performance on uh, St. Patrick's uh, Day mm-hmm. up in um, Air Square, and there's these uh, young people dancing, and I was thinking, because I used to do dancing as a kid, and my father did it all his life, you know. And um, as a kid, you're like, but I'm the only boy doing it, you know. And get back in there. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. <laughs> that was a conversation to me and my parents. But as an adult, I'm thinking, I want to do this again. I yeah. want to get back into it. I'm, I am aware of your time, Andrew, and I'm really, really grateful of it. Um, and I've, I've said a few times about why I think it's so important that you're sitting here talking with me. Well, thank you. Um, however, there's something missing. What's that? You came here for the music. We haven't heard any music out of you yet. Oh, boy. <laughs> and talking to you earlier, I heard you sing in such a melodious uh, tone. Oh, no, no, I wasn't. So, uh, first of all, you're going to sing a little... Oh, I'm going to get you to sing it while you like it. Or <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> a song in Gaelic. Okay. So, where did you learn the Gaelic for this? Um, so, it turns out my fiddle teacher, Darcy, had been taking some Irish with a guy named Ina, who lives in all places of Berlin... Uh, across italki. Italki is a really useful language acquisition tool. Anyway, uh, I had enough lessons with Ina that I could just... I, the only goal was to be able to pronounce the words more or less, not, not completely mangle them. You know, I don't speak any Irish. Um, but anyway, I learned enough so that I could sing the song. And um, so I guess I'll have to go into this with the, the attitude that I've been trying to cultivate which is the worst thing, you know, I'm putting myself out there, but the worst thing that'll happen is that I'll make everybody else feel superior. And that's definitely what's going to happen here. So if you really want me to sing, I will, but I I do. And, and, you know, and I'll say a few things just to put you at ease. Um, One is, you know, one of the biggest inspirations for me was to see this guy on stage in London who was singing really awfully to MIDI tracks uh, you know, he's wearing a tuxedo with a with a bow tie undone, and the crowd was going crazy for him. And I was thinking, that's awful. <laughs> you know, right? You can do better than that. And it's like, well, do it then. Okay, I will. Right? Yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then um, the other thing I wanted to say was, I can sing songs in Spanish and Italian uh-huh. and in Chinese uh-huh. and Watin Bedong Washua. I don't know what I'm saying. Uh-huh. So Mesha, uh-huh. it doesn't matter. Yeah. Know? Well in this case I actually do know what I'm saying. I know oh, what the okay. translation means. Well, you're ahead of me then. Well okay. I don't know. <laughs> but well it does remind me at, at Carol's um, last autumn there was a woman visiting from Argentina who had maybe, you know, five words of English total. But she sang this song, um, Both Sides of the Tweed. Oh, it was just it just melted your heart. It was just amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, okay. <laughs> okay. Am I supposed to go now? <laughs> In your own time. All right, all right. Well, I'll go ahead and... So, um, uh, I think a lot of a lot of people here, at least, I think people learned this as children, uh, as in the, maybe an older generation especially. Um, so, it's... Um, Trasna na down ta dal shir dal shir slan le shan witnesses slan le shan gien gyal e mo khri agus gyal i an khrien 
Gyalavik Philogoheren Hanak Mahoch and the Hirchaigain Oragus Aragat Severus on tail Irian on Crinam Labrachagachle Smed Rugem Le Duchi Movincher Rasnana downta dal shir dal shir slan leshan weaknesses slan leshan gien gyale mohri agus gyali an khrien gyale veg fela goheren winchiranir khershed kharje mohri falche is fela ve romer gachtev Eragin shantel shashegi amanri, gurlosana inferi gilme, trasnana downta dal shir dal shir, slan leshan weaknesses, slan leshan gien, gyale mohri agus gyale anhrien, gyale veg fella goheren. <laughs> Bravo! You're very polite. That's you're beautiful. Very kind. I, you're very kind through giving us that. <laughs> no, it's really, really now everybody can feel very superior, <laughs> which <laughs> is a fine. It's a good outcome too. <laughs> but you, you said you feel more exposed doing uh, a fiddle tune than singing that. Well, fiddle tunes are, I think, are harder. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's uh, starting starting a tune can be hard because you know you have to you have to. That's what I practice a lot. Is mm-hmm. is 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 starting. There's the illusion of mastery. If you repeat something a bunch of times, well, then by the end of the 10 times you repeated it, well, well, you're, of course you're good, mm-hmm. but that isn't the way it works in this session. In yeah. the session, you got to nail it the first time. So mm-hmm. it can be, it can be, you're very exposed. Well, uh, I will say that was beautiful. I was trans, I was transformed, you know, at times to Connemara in my head. I was just thinking, oh, this is pretty good. But I've got northern ears, so you must you must understand mm. there's a mm. there's a barrier between. I think I think Ina grew up in Connemara. I think so. Mm. I think that's why I have that pronunciation. Maybe I'm making that up. Really, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Andrew, thank you very very much. It's been a total. Oh, joy. it's been delightful. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure and, to talk to you. And and good on you for starting this podcast. Wow. How fun! It's a yeah. great idea. Thank you, thank you. And you can subscribe to it. I have, and and I'm going to listen to episodes on the way back to San Francisco. Great. I'm going to get Justin in, hopefully, uh, this week to record as well. He's at the session. Um, He's the oldest guy we know of who's playing in any session in Galway, so I'm looking forward to that as well. Yeah, Yeah. wonderful. Cheers, Andrew. Thank you. This has been a Solid Hill Media original podcast and production.